Welcome to Manage This, the podcast by project managers for project managers. Every other week, we get together to discuss what matters to you in this lively and ever-changing world of project management. It's our goal to challenge you, to encourage you, and to provide some principles and guidance, whether you're a veteran PM or a newbie. And we do that by hearing the everyday stories of others who have been there and done that. I'm your host, Nick Walker. And with me are the two guys who I have no qualms about calling our resident experts, Andy Crow and Bill Yates. And Andy, we have on the phone with us today someone who has worn many hats in his career, and his experience has allowed him to play some key roles in a variety of projects. You know what, Nick? I'm really excited about this particular guest and the topic that we're talking about, leadership and culture. And he's got a perspective that I don't think anyone else uh, that we've had on the podcast has brought. So this is going to be good. Well, let me introduce him. Joshua Shottick has a background as an officer in the military. He's worked in the oil and gas industry, in healthcare, and now in real estate. He has degrees in mechanical engineering and business, an MBA in marketing and finance, and is a Six Sigma black belt. Joshua, welcome to Manage This. Uh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Now, you have been a leader in a variety of different organizational environments and cultures. You've seen how essential effective leadership is in creating a great culture. I think it might be a good place to start by just talking a little bit about what you call your three pillars for successful organizations, leadership, education, and communication. Why are those three things pillars? You know, I really feel like those three things are pillars because none of the three can stand alone. I really believe that leadership is a key principle, and you have to have someone who is a willing and educated learner and someone who is open to different communication styles. Because as good leaders, you have to have all three, and you have to be able to instill that and be able to continue to grow yourself and communicate in a clear, concise method on ways how other people like to be communicated with. Hmm. And one of the things I understand that you really put forth uh, in your speaking engagements is the importance of leadership in, in establishing a, a, an effective culture and, and, and vice versa. You know, a, a great culture um, means great leadership, but it can also work the opposite. Yes, it can. Uh, you know, we've seen this in a lot of different organizations and cultures, and as you had mentioned earlier, I've been very fortunate to be part of a wide variety of them. And I've seen great leaders and bad cultures sink uh, because the atmosphere around them was not not conducive. And I've seen great cultures with bad leaders that couldn't rise because they didn't know how to fit within that atmosphere. Joshua, this is Andy, and uh, one of the things that stands out in your bio is uh, you've you've had a lot of military service. You've worked in the special forces. Talk to me about leadership in that context, and talk to me about uh, what you observed and what you saw, maybe good and bad. I'm sure uh, at this point in your career, you've probably seen uh, a lot of the spectrum of good leadership and maybe some that was a little bit lacking. Hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that in the context of, of the military world. Sure. In the military, the first definition of leadership that you learn is it's the process of influencing others to accomplish a mission or task by providing purpose, motivation, and direction. And you see this very often as young leaders who don't take good direction from their senior enlisted 
and enlisted soldiers. And I think it's part of being a good leader is being a good listener. And so I've been fortunate to see really good enlisted soldiers and leaders above me who have done this well and have used this to shape and grow the rest of their teams. And I've also, to your point, seen the opposite of this, where you have leaders that think they can do it their own way, and they don't take any guidance or listen to anyone, or they don't take the team approach. And honestly, their teams die, and they aren't successful. I had a friend who went to West Point uh, right out of high school, and he, uh, when he got there, the first thing that shocked him was they didn't teach him to be a leader. They taught him to be a follower. And uh, being a follower in his case meant, hey, you can't walk on the sidewalk. There's so many things you can't do, and you're going to take orders from anyone and everyone about the most trivial things and the most serious. And at some point, you start to absorb, okay, this is how I need to relate to leadership. This is this is uh, some of the things that makes makes a person a decent leader, and then you begin to transition into that role. So that's an interesting point you bring up. Yeah, it's a great great point because you know you have to be a good follower because if you want people to follow you you have to understand what you can expect from them it's the old adage of you know walk a mile in someone else's shoes and in the military it's you know walk 10 miles in someone else's <laughs> with a 60 pound pack <laughs> Joshua I had a question about um, that connection between leadership and culture if you have a if you have healthy leadership, you have a healthy culture. If you have a healthy culture, then there's probably a strong leader behind that. Um, to you, what does a healthy team culture look like? What are some of the characteristics and attributes? Hmm. You know, for the organizations I've been a part of that have really good cultures, it really starts with values. Hmm. Um, and I've been fortunate to be part of some teams and organizations that had incredible values, a great mission and a very large vision. And it's something where I've actually been a been a pleasure to speak about myself and some different organizations because those values are really ingrained in all of us. And so if we can relate to someone at that human level uh, to where we understand their values and their values connect with us, it resonates. So uh, you start to develop that team atmosphere where we all believe in the same things at the very root which makes everything else possible. Mm. I want to I just pick up on that, Joshua, um, yep. with a follow-up question there. So if values are uh, this tremendously important thing, what would you say you value? Uh, to me, integrity is number one. Uh, I've been fortunate to, to grow through the Boy Scouts as an Eagle Scout, or my Eagle Scout rank, and through the military, and through my corporate experience. If people can't trust you, they're not going to follow you, mm. and they're not going to listen to you. My son is an Eagle Scout, and, and so I can identify a little bit with that. And, and I appreciate your, your taking pride in that, uh, you know, even, even yes. after all these years. Can, can you tell me a little bit about how you've been able to build on, on some of the things that, that you uh, took away from all of the, uh, the hard work and accomplishment it takes to, to be an Eagle Scout? I was very fortunate. My, my father actually passed away when I was very young, hmm. and so— Scouting gave me a bunch of male role models and a bunch of brothers very early in my my young career. And so that really taught me structure. It taught me to, how to be a good person, how to be a great citizen, you know, how to give back to the world and learn about being part of something bigger than myself. Josh, well, that's, that's awesome. I, um, 
I'm thinking of some of our listeners, and um, many times, and you may have been in a similar situation, some of our listeners have been asked to step into situations where there has not been integrity, or there has, for whatever reason, there is suddenly a poisonous culture, or there's a bad culture they have to step into and lead. What are some steps that we can take as leaders to uh, reestablish a positive culture or bring something back to life? What are some things that you've seen that are effective? You know, I think where it starts is with us, mm-hmm. right? We can't expect others to change unless we're willing to change. Okay. And so we have to recognize where we're at in that environment and see where are the opportunities. So who are some of those people who are creating that negative culture? Mm-hmm. And where are some opportunities for growth in ourselves and within others? And it's definitely a two-way street. So can a, can a leader come in uh, to a negative culture environment and, and completely turn that around? And, and if so, how? I do. I think they can. And it does take time uh, because sometimes you have individuals who are not open to change. And you have to be able to look at that what it is. And after you've given yourself enough opportunities, you give them enough opportunities, be okay with making those changes for the betterment of the group. You know what, Joshua, I'm thinking through as you're describing some of this, and you said uh, a lot of the foundation of this is integrity, and uh, that resonated with me. You know, the worst project I think I ever worked on in my career to date, knock on wood, <laughs> is uh, is one where... Uh, my boss asked me to fundamentally misrepresent um, the where we were on the project mm-hmm. to some of the key stakeholders, and mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, it, it was kind of outrageous uh, what it came down to, but basically uh, just out out and out misrepresent it. And the effect on the culture that it had, because it started in degrees. It didn't start out to where, hey, I want you to give just a complete out-and-out lie. It started out just a little bit of a misrepresentation um, and then built up to the fact of, hey, you have to go and you have to say this. And even though we knew that was 180 degrees out of phase from the truth. And the effect on the department, even that request, what he asked, and I ultimately left the organization before doing that. I just couldn't do it. But the effect on the organization was toxic. So it's interesting that you you pointed that out because I hadn't really codified it that way. But that's an interesting observation you give. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and like you, I've been in that situation myself. And because of, of my values, it's not something that I'm okay doing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's it's tricky. Um, again, this wasn't something somebody didn't walk in day one and say, you know, I just want you to lie. And it wasn't even about the the progress we had made. It was about what database we were using on the back end. The contract specified that we needed to be using uh, Oracle, and we were using Microsoft SQL Server. And uh, you know, I was asked to conceal that and deceive the client mm-hmm. so that they thought it was Oracle. Uh, by putting up fake screens and fake data, things like that. I mean, it was an out and out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was kind of outrageous. That's the that's the only time that's ever really happened to me like that. But it it certainly did. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So it becomes a slippery slope, doesn't it? It, it does. does. Yeah. And Joshua and, and really Andy, I, I'd like to hear your opinion on on this. The when I think of. Okay, that's a very obvious sign. If I have somebody saying, code a fake window, 
then my integrity button's going off, right? The light is is. Uh, but it's just temporary, blinking. Bill. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they won't notice. They'll be back on the plane before. <laughs> that's right. It's we'll, only a screenshot. Yeah, that's all. But there there are subtle signs too that uh, for a, for a leader again for a project manager there's subtle signs that I get sometimes from a sponsor or from senior management that are going they're starting to erode the culture that that we've tried to build in on the team what are some other subtle signs and then what do you do about it when when there those signs start to pop up what are some other signs that you guys have seen i think you have to address them head on uh, you know i think it, it's interesting and not a lot of organizations do this well first a lot of organizations have values and they're usually something on a wall someplace in right. your executive way uh, not a lot of organizations are open to talking about them on a regular basis. And that's something that I have historically dealt with my teams is on a weekly basis or if not sooner, if something is happening, uh, we talk about them and we ask what is happening in your day-to-day life, both from a business perspective and a personal perspective, um, and how does that mirror your values? Because if we're not open about it, if you can't share with your leaders, then something bad is evidently going to happen. Mm. You know, it's funny, Joshua, that you say that and um, uh, about having values but not talking about them or that they talk about them but, but maybe they're not representative. We, um, we have ours on the wall as well, but we spend a lot of time talking about that, talking about what they mean for our organization. And uh, it, it, becomes, it becomes part of the culture in a very real way um, when you bring them up at performance reviews, when you weave them into the daily life of the company, um, one of our values is uh, is outrageous customer service. But that phrase gets used here almost daily, if not multiple times a day. That uh, you know, sometimes somebody will say, "Hey, why did you do this? Why did you?" Well, hey, it's outrageous customer service, and you know, it's hard to argue when you say that's your core value. Yeah, it's great because we actually have one of my organizations. Uh, we actually gave out value awards once a quarter. Uh, and it becomes a very large display among your peers. This way, other people are recognized in front of their peers and their leaders, uh, the folks that work with them, to recognize that these people are doing the right stuff. Mm. Yeah, and you see organizations where it, it sounds like their uh, their corporate values were developed in a marketing focus group, and you wonder, you know, is this really? I, I yeah. still remember one company I worked for. They said, uh, "We work hard and we play hard," and the people around the the office said, "Is this our company? Because <laughs> we work hard. What have we ever done that's resembled play? Ever? Tell me one thing we've ever done." And it was uh, it was kind of funny to point that out. But it sounds great. Yeah. You know what, Bill? Uh, to answer that question, I think also uh, you have to look for you have to make sure people are aligned to those values. And that can be really tricky. We talk about alignment a lot here at Velocity Teach, and one of the one of the tricky things about making sure people are aligned is that you may you may have that set up one day and then it may drift. So that now uh, the very values that you had people aligned to maybe outrageous customer service, but then people get motivated in different directions, you know, mm-hmm. and so it changes. It can it can cause problems. You got to yeah. constantly revisit how your organization uh, matches up to those values. I completely agree, and it goes now in the corporate world about hiring values. I'm a big believer that you can teach and train 
almost any skill set. You can't teach and train values or attitude. I agree. Yeah, that's such a solid point. There's a, I'm a big fan of um, the ideal team player uh, by Patrick Lencioni, and there, that's really what he's getting at. Is uh, he draws an analogy with a story on the front half of the book, and the back half, he's talking about what are the takeaways here? How do we identify the right people to hire into positions on our teams or within our organizations? And that's it. That's the hard part, right? It's uh, there's an assumption that okay, if somebody has a certain level of education or a skill set. We can help take that to the next level, but how do we make sure that person has integrity, uh, is a humble team player, has a, a hunger about them? Those are tough things to get at. Yes, they are. It's And it's hard to evaluate while you're interviewing, so you have to be able to have those open-ended questions, talk about historical opportunities when they've been able to display that. And you find very quickly when you start talking about values, if someone is not a values-driven person, they don't feel very comfortable in the conversation. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. And Joshua, this this sort of leads into something that, that you talk a lot about, I understand, and that's what you call PMA, positive mental attitude. How does that play the the role, uh, the, the, the big role in all of this? Yeah, thank you. I think, to me, positive mental attitude is really everything. When I think about the... Uh, the three pillars, I always talk about how PMA is this cloud that surrounds the, the three pillars. Mm. Uh, because, you know, attitude can't be taught. It can't be trained. You know, it is something that you either have or you don't. And it, and it really just looks at how someone approaches life and how someone takes all the negative that happens to them, that happens to all of us, and then how do you react to it. That's the key of positive mental attitude. How has that been personally for you? How, how has that come about? Sure. Well, you know, I've been, uh, as you had mentioned earlier, I was in the military for a while and you know, going through situations like Ranger School and experiencing some very hard times when uh, they don't treat you the best in that school. <laughs> uh, and you have to think about how you're going to react to what's happening when you're not getting fed or when you're uh, overexerted or you're not sleeping. Um, how are you going to make it through the next day and see the bright side of something? And quite honestly, combat is the same way. You know, there are some really bad days, and you go through situations where you don't know how you're going to make it, and you've got to keep thinking that the next day is going to be better and that you're doing good for more than just yourself. And I hear you know, a, a lot from people who have had uh, parents who have been in the military and in leadership positions in the military, and, and they often take – that that attitude that that you're going to do this you're going to do that attitude into their family but but you're what you're describing is something completely different I, I am i am and i think it's it's something that you've got to experience and i think everybody goes through hard times and it's how do you react to those hard times how do you make the best out of the situation right so how do you make lemonade out of lemons hmm. and as the old adage and it's really it's about you. And when people see that energy, that positive mental attitude, they get attracted to you. We've all probably have heard from our parents, birds of a feather uh, flock together. And it's very true. And I think PMA is the same way. You, you'd be hard-pressed to find people who are negative and a positive team because they filter themselves out eventually. 
You know what, Joshua, uh, the, probably the best book I ever read, I think I've referenced it on this podcast before, is uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And he was a World War II um, Holocaust survivor, uh, Auschwitz um, camp uh, survivor. And he said he figured out really quickly uh, when he got to Auschwitz, he said the guards could take away every possession I had. Uh, the only thing they couldn't take away was my internal response. They couldn't take away uh, my own attitude. And he started looking around the camp at who lived and who died, and so much of it came down to attitude. So I've got an, I've got a, a question for you. You know, when I look at your bio, uh, you're a mechanical engineer, and you're a Six Sigma black belt. And so I would make some immediate inferences uh, based on that, that you're sort of a left brain, logical guy, and yet mm-hmm. you come across as a, as a very personable guy. How would you put yourself on that continuum? Uh, and then I got a follow-up question for you. Okay. So uh, it's interesting because I do have the, the hard science background and a quick funny story. When I was in my ROTC coursework in college, that was actually a concern of mine because I didn't want to become an engineer. I wanted to be an infantry officer and help serve, protect, and mm. save lives. My colonel at the time actually had to call down to my branch manager and plead, please do not put this guy as an engineer. He will not be happy. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? So it, it literally took a personal phone call because otherwise they typecast you. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, so for example, those two degrees, I would have gotten typecast. And in the military, no one ever knew I was an engineer. So mm. I, I get uh, I get that aspect. I, I have um, I have an affinity for that. I'm a Six Sigma black belt as well. Don't have an engineering background, but I, I was a software developer for a long time. So I guess they're kind of third cousins in a way. <laughs> uh, but the, the Six Sigma, you know, these are all data-driven things, and yet – you know, you talk about uh, your PMA and you talk about people a lot. Um, tell me, uh, w- when it comes to leadership, uh, how that, uh, how the how the people side influences it. it it's, it's huge. You know, the, the data analytics part is is crucial because I can use that side of my brain, as you said, to to make quick decisions. At the same time, the people side, you really have to slow down. Because you're dealing with humans, you're dealing with emotions, you're dealing with people that respond as opposed to data, which we all know is just black and white. So that's part of where I think the leadership, the PMA, is very helpful because you can take what is black and white and say, yes, I understand what the decision should be. Is that what the decision is going to be? And very often they are different. And you have to be able to go with what is called your gut feeling, right? They call your gut the second brain, and they call it that for a good reason. My wife uh, is very good about reminding me when I present uh, her with some issue I'm having at work or elsewhere, uh, present her with data, and she says, yeah, but you're dealing with human beings. (laughs) And it's always a great reminder, you know, Mm. and that's not even a a sort of a Mr. Spock that these are flawed human beings. That's more just saying, hey, people are complicated. You know, people have different needs, and they're not all completely logical and rational all the time. Mm. Absolutely. Joshua, there's a concept I want to ask you about, and I think you and I are are wired similarly in that we both see the positive side in people, and I tend to assume 
uh, a team is healthy until I see proof otherwise. So I, I tend to think, well, I'm feeling good, so the team must be happy with our progress or happy with the work as well. So there was an author, um, it was actually Ed Catmull in Creativity, Inc. Uh, he's the president of Pixar and, and uh, Disney Studios. He had a, a chapter dedicated to um, the problem of blind spots. And it really, yeah. it, it hit me right between the eyes. Because as a leader, sometimes I assume, well, things are good for me. You know, I'm feeling pretty good in my world. So I may overlook or, or not be aware of uh, issues that are perhaps right under the the surface with the team. How, what are some what are some efforts that you undertake to make sure that you're not suffering from blind spots as a leader? That is a really good question, and it's interesting. We talk about blind spots a lot, and uh, we use this example. If you're looking straight forward and you do not turn your head left or right, you can basically see about 180 degrees. That means that you have an entire 180 degrees behind you that you cannot see. (laughs) And it's when you start to realize that you're missing half, at least, of every opportunity or what's really happening underneath the surface is when you start to bring in coaches and you start to bring in mentors because they can stand behind you and they can see that blind spot. And then they have mentors and coaches behind them. So it's always a great idea to have other leaders assess you um, from an angle that you can't see. Mm, That's good. That's fantastic. I I thought Bill was going to say that because he didn't have any blind spots, he assumed that nobody else did either. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, Josh, I just want to add to that. I like that. Again, it kind of gets back to the, the leader um, setting the right example. If, if I am able to say to my team, hey, I have a mentor, I have a coach, I have someone who steps into my meetings every now and then or gives me feedback on uh, communication that I've provided my team, then I think that sets a fine example for those that I'm leading that it's okay to not pretend like you got everything figured out. Uh, there's humility in that that I think grows the leader. So uh, I like that. Absolutely. You know, and it's actually a concept that's been embraced vulnerable leadership. And it's being open to others so that they can be open to you. Yep. Joshua, you know, we've touched on this, but, you know, just just looking at your background, uh, you know, in the military, then the oil and gas industry, then in healthcare, and then in real estate, that that doesn't seem like a common career path for, <laughs> for, for most people. I mean, people might look at that and, and say, those are completely separate types of environments, completely separate cultures, but yet you're talking about um, common things to, to, to all of these. So maybe from the outside, those of us who would say, how did, how did that career path take place? It sounds like maybe it's, it's fairly natural for you. Well, yeah, I, I basically have learned that the unnatural has become natural for me in my <laughs> career. Uh, you know, for example, the education I've been uh, very honored to be able to partake in most of those don't go together, as you had mentioned, engineering and business or you know, marketing and finance. They just don't normally mesh. Uh, and so when I think about that in this context of my career, I have moved toward opportunities where I thought I could be a help uh, to a team, to an organization, um, and you know, quite honestly, to my country. And so I have found myself in those roles for better or for worse, and no matter where I have been, I have taken away quite a bit and have 
ideally help myself grow, which then it can help someone else grow. Can we talk a little bit about one of these pillars specifically, uh, the pillar of education? Hmm. I'm, I'm curious about that because obviously you're, you're talking about more than just you know, earning PDUs to recertify here. Uh, you know, what, what encompasses that one pillar of education? I think education is, as you had mentioned, definitely much broader than just uh, book work. I think education goes into that concept of lifelong learner uh, because we are never going to be perfect. That's just not how we're wired. And I think the first thing is to be open with ourselves to understand that we're not perfect and that we need to learn from our mistakes and we need to learn from others and be open to that and be willing to learn. So it's, it's becoming clearer to me why these, are, these leadership, education, and communication are not completely separate, um, but, but there, there is a continuum there. There is. You know, it's very much like a three-legged stool. Without one, the stool still falls over. Joshua, we have been honored to have this chance to talk with you. And we want you to know that here on Manage This, we do not allow our guests to go away empty-handed, all right? So we have a gift for you. This is part of our outrageous customer service, okay? This Manage This mug, we are going to put it in the mail and, and make sure you get it with our thanks. Excellent. Well, it's been my honor, and thank you for having me. Thank you, Joshua. Lastly, Joshua, how can listeners connect with you, uh, either by email, on the web, social media? What's the best way? You know, honestly, any method is fine. I've always had a 24-hour response rate to all of my teams. So no matter who sends me an email, uh, calls me a text or a smoke signal, I always <laughs> respond within 24 hours. Well, thanks so much, Joshua. Andy and Bill, as always, thanks for your guidance and expertise as well. We here at Manage This believe your time has great worth. And we want to reward you for listening to this podcast with free PDUs, professional development units toward your recertifications. To claim your free PDUs, go to VelociTeach.com and select Manage This Podcast from the top of the page. Click the button that says Claim PDUs and just click through the steps. Well, that's it for us here on Manage This. In the meantime, you can visit us at VelociTeach.com slash Manage This to subscribe to this podcast, to see a transcript of the show, or to contact us and tweet us at manage underscore this. If you have any questions about our podcasts or about project management certifications, we always like hearing from you. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, keep calm and manage this.